This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ultimately, ignorance is always the problem. People are ignorant of what they don't know. And being ignorant, they're often afraid of what they don't know and they stereotype. Ignorance that is only solved by conversation. And for me, what I can add to the conversation is my art. This is Friend on the Bigger Picture, and I'm Lim Sun Hing. A little over two years ago, shortly after I joined Bigger Picture team, I got to interview Baraka Blue, a spoken word artist and musician who takes traditional spiritual writings and meld them to a contemporary sound that is more familiar to modern ears and sensibilities. Baraka Blue is back in the country as part of his Love and Light Tour 2016. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Long time, two years. Two years. Yeah, in, in music history, it's like forever. Yeah, the <laughs> career can be made and broken, and but in life, it's just a blink of the eye. So. True, true. <laughs> so what has happened to you over the last couple of years? Um, I've traveled quite a bit, almost constantly on the road, and that's wonderful. And it's also taxing, and sometimes I forget what time zone I am, I'm in. And you ask me, if, what day did you arrive? I don't even know what day it is today. How am I supposed <laughs> to know what day I arrived? But I've also released a book of poetry, another album. So I'm constantly working, constantly writing. It's been wonderful. But this tour is not about your new album. No. This tour is entitled Love and Light. And Love and Light is a song, one of my most well-known songs. And it's a music video that we created recently. So it's, I think, the most uh, recent music video that I've put out. Why is there a need to produce a music video when the album has been out for a while? Well, in this day and age, as you know, with a radio station, it's hard to get people to listen to things if they can't <laughs> see something. You know, you find in the music industry, people used to sit around a record player and just sit the whole family and listen to the, the record. And then even CDs and, and tapes. But now in the kind of digital age of social media, if you put out a song, it just kind of gets lost in the stream but if you put out a good visual with it then all of a sudden people want to tune in and listen to the music so we just the younger people they're a very visual generation if there's yeah, nothing their eyes can the see eyes. but this piece uh, love and light incorporates a lot of moroccan traditional music and it's really amazing song and so there's a videographer named adam shamash very talented videographer and he, he said i want to make a video for this and we should do it in morocco so we had the opportunity finally to go to Morocco together and shoot the video. And what you see really showcases the beauty of Morocco, the traditional city of Fez. And I feel like it's a, it's a wonderful piece. Did you have to re-record the piece of music? No, so we just used the audio and I uh, rapped along to the audio track. Because I saw some images of folks there playing traditional instruments which looked like a lute. Was that, it was kind of like a off Yeah, yeah, so actually that's a good question. We had that played in the studio, and it was produced by Annis Cannon, who I usually work with you musically. We had a, I don't even know, so it's Ganawa music, is the, that traditional West African music. So we had some musicians come in and play. And then when we were in Morocco, I found a man on the street, actually. And he was a musician, he was selling musical instruments. He had a little shop. I said, listen to this song. You like the song? Can you play this? What he, and he said, yeah. He picked up an instrument. And he said, dum 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 And I said, all right, you want to be in the video? He said, yeah. So we just picked him up <laughs> off the street. He just was a shopkeeper, actually. And so he's in the video. 
So it's funny, you know, now that that video came out and it's been seen by so many people all over the world, there'll be people that go to Morocco and see the musician in the video. They walk by a shop. They said, hey, you know, you're famous here in this video. And uh, then they tell me, they say, look, I saw this guy. They take a picture with him. So Quite exciting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, you're from the United States, and more and more attention have been drawn to Islam and Muslims, more so lately, on account of one presidential nominee talking about barring all Muslim immigrants. And then most recently, in Queens, you had these killings. As an artist, how do you respond to these? How do they fit into your own imagination or in your world? Hmm. I like the way you put that. Yeah, it's very strange and very interesting times in the just the global politics, but also particularly in America. I mean, it's a really complex issue. Donald Trump is a fascinating character. You know, he's perfect product of the reality television era, social media. He talks in 140 character sound bites. <laughs> you know, he's just a perfect product of the kind of modern, hyper fast paced, you know, almost outrage culture that we've kind of created. I can't take my eyes away. No one can. It's fascinating. Even if you can't stand anything he's saying, you want to tune in because it's like watching a train wreck live. Like, what is going to happen? It's really fascinating to watch the discourse as someone who has spent so much time with the Muslim community in America and then who has traveled all around the Muslim world and just sees the general level of ignorance on both sides of things. In America, there are so many people that they're just ignorant. They never really met a Muslim. They have no idea. I mean, this ultimately, ignorance is always the problem because that's the crazy thing. Now that I travel so much, every American who travels and people find out you're American, they say, is Donald Trump real? Is that going on? And so I'm like, man, don't associate that. Like, I got to get reminded of that everywhere I go. So it's... Uh, you have to go out with a disclaimer attached on your forehead. Yeah. But, you know, I understand it because it's just, it seems like too ridiculous to be true. But ultimately, ignorance is the problem. And, you know, it cuts both ways because I've traveled many places in the Muslim world. And, you know, I was in Turkey recently and I had an amazing trip. And there I met some Syrian refugees that live in Turkey. You know, there's so many of them. Right. They're beautiful, beautiful people. They actually invited me to eat with them and things like that. And I'm like, you're refugees and you're feeding me. You know, but just that beautiful hospitality. But one of the young boys, he was a teenager. He said, you're from America? I said, yeah. He said, I don't understand. Are there Muslims in America? I said, yeah, there's a lot. There's millions. He said, well, aren't there armies and tanks and soldiers everywhere in America? And I just said, subhanAllah. You know, because for him, he associates, as a Syrian refugee, he associates America with the American industrial complex and war and military. You see, he's a young boy, 12, 13, 14. All he thinks of when he thinks of America is guns and soldiers. And I was like, that's so amazing. And then here I am in America and people are like, isn't everywhere in the Muslim world chaos and violence and terrorism? You see what I'm saying? So it's just this mutual ignorance that is only solved by conversation. And for me, the way that I have a conversation, I'm not a politician. Uh, I'm not a religious scholar. I'm not someone like that. I'm an artist. So for me... What I can add to the conversation is my art. What does your art do to further this conversation? Knowing each other is the key. And what I've found is that most people around the world are good people, sincere people. If they see someone in need, they feel compassion. If they see someone fall, they want to rush to help them up. Anywhere you are, no matter what race, 
religion, nationality, people are good in their hearts. That's a firm belief I have. But on the other hand, people are ignorant of what they don't know. And being ignorant, they're often afraid of what they don't know, and they stereotype. There was a survey they did in America, just mainstream Americans, what do you think of Muslims? And those that had never met a Muslim, they said, we don't like Muslims. But those people that had met a Muslim, even just one Muslim, they said, oh yeah, Muslims are fine. So really, it's just about that. The thing is, all human beings love beautiful sounds. And all human beings love to move their body when they hear the right sound. In fact, they can't control it sometimes, right? It's just a natural response. And music is a beautiful thing because it doesn't actually matter what language you speak. When you hear the music and you hear someone speaking even in a foreign language, I hear uh, the Malay songs. I understand what they're saying. I may not understand every word, but I can feel the heart of the, the singer, what he's saying. And so art has this ability to transcend. And if we just see the humanity in the other, because it's hard to demonize someone once you've humanized them. And art and culture and all these things, they really humanize people for us. You see, and even now in America, every major museum, maybe people say, oh, we don't like Islam. But you go in the major museums, they have an Islamic art section. And they look and they see the beautiful tiles and the beautiful calligraphy and the beautiful traditional dress. And people say, this is amazing because art has an ability to show us a window into the soul of a people. And then it becomes harder to just stereotype them as the other. Should artists carry that responsibility of somehow bringing people who are ignorant of each other together? That's a good question. I think every artist has to answer that for themselves. But for me, I don't necessarily overthink it or theorize it when I'm making art. I'm just sincerely trying to make art from my heart and my experience. And I found that the less I think about the listener, will they like it or not? The less I think about that, the more sincere it is just me in the moment expressing what I'm feeling in whatever state I may be in. And I find that ironically, if I sincerely express it, just like I'm writing in my diary, writing in the jungle somewhere, writing just to sing to the trees and the birds, right? If I write in that sincere moment of just, you know, not really processing it through the mind, but just from the heart, I find that ironically, then it connects with people more. They feel it. If you feel someone, they're really speaking their truth or they're expressing their heart in the moment. It's not contrived and it's honest and they're not holding back like we were talking about before. It's just raw and uncut. People feel it. We connect with that. Artists, their only job is to have integrity with themselves in the moment and what they believe and what they're experiencing and what they know and what they understand. And then let the chips fall where they may after that. When I hear artists talk about doing just what I think is right for them in the moment, sometimes it comes across as being self-indulgent. Well, this is why for me, uh, art has always been deeply intertwined with my spiritual path and my spiritual practice. And they're inseparable. You know, some people say, oh, do you make spiritual music or you do you make religious music? And I say, no, I just make life music. And we, we did a retreat yesterday in a beautiful place in the jungle outside of Kuala Lumpur, about an hour. And the retreat center is called the University of Life. It was created by a man who was a school dropout, amazing man. And he built the entire retreat center from discarded objects, things that people threw away, wood and stones, and he built it. And there's all types of very strange things and different shapes and different colors. I mean, it's like Willy Wonka's uh, <laughs> fun factory, you know. But that place has a healing. People ask me, are you a student? I say, yes. They say, where do you study? I say, 
in every breath, in every moment. This is the university of life. And we came, what did we come? We came to know ourselves and understand ourselves. And every spiritual tradition that I've studied, they, they really teach at the center that, yes, there's that ego self. It's just me, me, me. I'm going to indulge myself. But there's also a deeper self. And that, in fact, the self, the true self, is almost like an unfathomable ocean. And in fact, our self it has a door or a window, you could say, to the deepest ground of being, the essence of all things. And so the essence of myself is the essence of yourself. So really, art, to me, is not just about expressing myself in the, in the surface manner. It's really about trying to dive deeper into the self that is at the essence, which is the self of selves, if you will. I really believe that for me, art is not just about expressing myself, but it's actually about discovering what's deeper in myself. Some, many times I write things and I say, wow, I didn't know that was in me. Or many times I write things and I don't understand them till years later. Or many times I'll be writing about things that I've been thinking about, but I haven't really been able to understand or grasp or books I've been reading or information I've been taking in. And I didn't know, I couldn't express it in just a normal state. But when I write, then I'm able to synthesize it. And I understand and I gain a different access to a deeper understanding of it. So for me, art is not just a superficial thing, but it's actually a means to know myself and that knowing myself allows me to understand the web that we're all woven into more. Your connection to the other. Yes. And, you know, there's a great uh, Hindu saint. They asked him, how do we deal with the other? How do we treat the other? He said, there are no other. That's the spiritual standpoint. And it's at the essence of all spiritual traditions is that this is all an interconnected web of being that we're woven into. It's only the illusion of separation. But in reality, we're all drops in an ocean. We're all merging with the ocean in and out of the ocean. You can't separate a drop. It is the ocean. So Rumi said, you think of yourself as just a drop in the ocean, but you don't know that you're also the entire ocean in a drop. I'm speaking with Baraka Blue, a spoken word artist and a hip-hop musician. And this is my second conversation with him. The last one was in May 2014. Coming up, what he has done in KL and might yet do in his appearances. This is Front Row on the Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. May you always have food on your plate. May you learn from every mistake. May you rise above all the hate. It's tuned to Front Row on the Bigger Picture, and I'm Lim Sun Hing speaking with Baraka Blue. He's in the country for five days as part of his Love and Light Tour 2016. And beyond his performances of the spoken word, he's engaging in dialogues, talks, and retreats. By the time this interview airs, Baraka, your five day program in Kuala Lumpur would be almost behind us. You talk about going to Gender Bike and having this retreat. Mm-hmm. I assume the retreat was not just for you, but there were other people there. You mm-hmm. engaged in mm-hmm. dialogue with all these people. What are you trying to accomplish beyond talking about this video? And when I discussed the ideas for the tour with Mehdar Tahir, we talked about wanting to really dive deeper. We didn't want to just do events where perform, sign autographs, say hi, take pictures, and go. But we wanted to say, hey, how can we really make profound connections on a deeper level? Give people some things to reflect on so that they can take them in their life and in their journey. And, you know, plant some seeds so that people then can water them as they wish, you know, and they can let them sprout as they will. One of the ways that I found for myself to do that is to take times of 
retreat. Take times of seclusion. Take times to just get out of the insane hustle and bustle of the city and the fast pace and just go to a place where there's no internet connection and, you know, <laughs> no television and just be in nature and be silent and have some time for, you know, contemplation, reflection, discussion. And that was the intention. Really what we're doing this whole tour is themed about the great mystic poet Rumi. Like I mentioned, I spent a month in Turkey with the uh, Sufi order founded by Rumi, the Mevlevis. And so we were just reflecting on the poetry of Rumi and some of the key themes and some of the key symbols he uses that are talking about the human condition and the spiritual path and the way to live deeper and live fuller because we only have a few breaths here. Mahdar, last time I was here, he took me to the University of Life, the retreat center. He just took me for a visit. We just walked around, spent a few hours and left. But I said, if I come back, we have to do a program here. <laughs> because it really is, it's like entering into a spiritual Disneyland. I feel like an Oompa Loompa might just walk out of the jungle. Like it's really a wonderful, amazing place. You have just used the word retreat and Disneyland mm -hmm. as if <laughs> now they're interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like a Disneyland of the spirit in the sense of like, you know, when you're a child, when I was young, I was lucky. My parents took me to Disneyland and, you know, you're just in awe and it, you feel like this is heaven. I'm here, that, right? Your imagination can run wild and you just feel free. And so in that sense, that's what I mean. It's like just this very amazing place. And the man who founded it, Habib Hussein Al-Latasi, is a very special man. He's from a great like spiritual lineage of Arabian scholars and descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. Most of them, they tend to wear, you know, the thobes and the big turban, but not him. Yesterday, he was wearing all pink, a leather vest, and a cowboy hat. <laughs> He's just the most eccentric person ever, and this space reflects his heart, you know? It's very eccentric, but it's loving, and it's spiritual. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what you're on. No judgment. No judgment. You and your unique being in this moment, this is perfect. And we want what you have to come here and we can all grow together through looking at each other, sitting with each other, discussing with each other. Much of what you do stems from your spiritual life. When I Googled you, your name invariably comes up, and another word is Muslim, mm -hmm. Islamic musician. And I've also talked to you about this the last time you were here. And you said these are perhaps tags slapped on by lazy people who mm -hmm. just need to classify you. But the very fact that when I Google you, this word just comes up, it seems to suggest that there is a real link between you and your religion. Mm -hmm. Because you're an artist, I have to kind of raise this question. Thinking of John Lennon's song about imagine no heaven, imagine no hell. For me, in a sense, it's imagine a world without religions. Imagine no religion. <laughs> what you're saying is uh, there's many things that I could reflect on. I think it's beautiful. You know, the Beatles, they're very interesting because, well, first of all, art is supposed to get you to think. And sometimes a good way to get someone to think is by saying something shocking. So it shakes them a little bit. Whoa. The Beatles were very much interested in spirituality, first and foremost. They went to India uh, and they had a guru. And actually, this became like front page news in America. It was on Time magazine. And this actually really helped introduce Indian spirituality to the West in a mainstream way. In fact, I read an amazing book 
called American Vedas, which is about the influence of Indian spirituality on the West. And it's, it's massive. And the Beatles are a big part of that. You know, the, the fact that there's a yoga studio on every corner in every American city and that people are doing transcendental meditation in the boardroom or in the classroom, it has to do with this. So I would take that with they're, they're seekers, but they're getting people to think. Imagine no religion. Imagine it's not just your label because the problem with religion or the problem with any identity type thing is it can be just this us versus them, this otherization. And of course, it's ironic because every religion starts with a single individual having a mystical experience of transcending all otherization and complete unity and oneness and experiencing this the ground of being the essence the source of all existence and then coming back out of that state and trying to teach and and spread that message to their followers or companions and so it's ironic of course that uh religion can be such a tool of Divisive. uni- of divisiveness and unification on the, on the one hand but this is just the nature of the world we're in the world of plurality and multiplicity so I personally see my spiritual path as woven into everything I do and every aspect of my being. Yes, the spiritual path that I follow is the religion of Islam. But the reason that I was drawn to Islam actually is because it has this deep universality and it affirms what Jesus brought and it affirms what Moses brought and it affirms that all religions at the core are saying the same message and they're from the same truth the same one there's messengers there's that are mentioned in the quran but there's also this idea mentioned by the prophet and mentioned in the quran that every nation was sent a guide and every nation was sent a prophet 124,000 so you know i really believe that in religio as the word it means to tie back to bind back it has a similar to yoga and yoga is the, the root is the same as the word yoke in English. So yoke is like to yoke an animal, to a yoke, to tie something back. So yoga and religion, they actually, etymologically, they mean the same thing, to tie back. And the idea is tying back to our source, to our essence, to our creator, if you will. And so I believe religion in its essence is a beautiful thing, but it's, it's a term that's been drugged through the mud. I don't even like to use the word religion anymore, to be honest. And a lot of times when I'm talking I will even try to avoid the word Islam because I know if I say Islam to an average American, they'll switch off. They they'll switch off, or they will switch into a thousand images that they have of what that is, and that may have absolutely nothing to do with what I'm talking about. And so I really believe that you know people say we're in the interspiritual age where everything is just intertwined and people are seeking, and that's how I am, and that's how I came. I mean, I read books by Buddhist masters and Hindu masters and Christian mystics and Native American spiritual guides and shamans. I sit with them and I learn from them. And this is ultimately, again, I believe at the core of the message of Islam, as with all other traditions, is this how to really deepen our humanity. And I think, unfortunately, the human ego kind of co-ops that message. And it's ironic because the spiritual message is actually the means to transform that ego and to disarm that ego and to allow that ego to let go a little bit so that the spirit can shine through. 
But some people, the ego will take that spiritual message instead of being transformed by it because the ego is like, you know, and you misappropriate it. Exactly, right? <laughs> we know Lord of the Rings, right? Smeagol, right? My precious. <laughs> so the ego is like Smeagol, right? And he's trying to he's trying to take the message and instead of being transformed by it because that's ego death and the ego fears death. What it wants to do is it fortifies itself with the spiritual message. So it uses it now as a tool to hit other people, even though it's a beautiful message, perhaps. Language is a very important thing. And we're human beings. Language is, you know, hayawana natiq in Arabic, which means the rational animal, but it also means the speaking animal. We're the speaking animals. So language is so important. And that's why I feel like being a poet is actually a high calling. But language is not a passive thing. I know you guys... Right, you play football here, you play soccer, but I'm gonna use a baseball analogy, okay? <laughs> so the pitcher, you say the pitcher is active, he's throwing the baseball, and the catcher is the one who catches it behind the plate. He's passive in a certain sense. He's receiving the ball, but he's not passive. He makes all the calls sometimes. He makes all the calls, <laughs> and he has to move his mitt here. He has to catch the ball, he has to be thinking, he has to be active, he has to go after the ball. In the same way with language, you don't just sit and listen. You have to be really trying to hear what another person is saying beyond the words. Because speech is a type of translation of what my soul, my mind is thinking. If I'm just lazy and I'm just hearing words and I'm not trying to actually hear, that's one of the saddest things. Most people, unfortunately, they're not actually listening, trying to hear what another person is saying. What do we do? We think... Okay, what am I going to say next? Right? Okay, he said something. Oh, yeah, I have something to say about that. You know, you're, you're already listening. queuing yeah, up. Yeah. You're not actually hearing. You checked out and you start thinking, what am I going to say? You're not in the moment. Exactly. And so listening is a very active exercise because you're weighing it against your experiences, your reflections. And, you know, language can be very deceiving, but it can also be a means to something beyond. So I feel like language is like arrows pointing in a direction. So you don't... You don't idolize the language. You don't worship the word. You see, what is the word pointing to? And that's where I'm trying to get. In fact, that's where I was going to when you started talking about going to gender bike and then having this retreat. And you were talking about how in terms of religion, how it's divisive. And that in a way points to how language is being used. On your trip here, you are also encountering students and you are talking to them about language mm -hmm. because of your own poetry writing, the spoken word. Language, if we don't have that kind of relationship to it, it functions in a very mundane way and we're merely just absorbing information. What should we be doing so that we see beyond the functional use of language? Because at the end of the day, like going back to the metaphor that you use, you know, we are all drops of water in the ocean. And if language is the thing that separates us from other things, it's language also that's supposed to knit us. Yeah, and language is powerful. If you think of all the different uh, religious traditions in the Bible, it says, in the beginning was the word. Quran, it says, kun fayakun, which means Allah said, be, and it is. Human beings have always understood that language has a profound relation to the spirit. The Arabs have a saying, they say, a person is hidden under their tongue. When they start speaking, then you see who they are. And, you know, they say, I think it's an English saying, they say, it's better to be quiet and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. <laughs> so language is kind of this translator between the seen and the unseen. There's an anthropologist named Wade Davis who, from Harvard, he's amazing. He goes out to 
kind of uncontacted tribes, the most quote-unquote primitive people that are unaffected by the modern world. All over the world he goes. And he studies languages. And he says something that shocked me. He said, languages are dying out at a faster rate than species on the planet. Every week or every few days, a language dies. Meaning the last person that spoke that language dies. There's thousands and thousands of languages. And he said, you may think that's not such a big deal because, hey, we're all learning to speak English, right? Then we can communicate better. <laughs> he said, yeah, but what if it was uh, obscure language in Africa and Amazon that you had to learn and everyone had to learn, right? But the point being, he said, no, it's deeper than that. He said, a language is an old growth forest of the mind. You know, all these uh, theories and linguistics that I tend to believe, I tend to agree with is that we actually think in language. So it's not just we're thinking and then we speak, but we're, our cognitive frames are limited by our language. Different languages have different meanings and different connotations, and it's a web. So, for instance, in Persian, the word for bloom, like a flower blooming, is the same word for laugh. So you say the flower is laughing, the flower is blooming. These subtle things, that they color how you experience things. They color how you actually see the world, because for a Persian looking at a garden, they're seeing laughter. For us, we may not be seeing that. Yes, language is very important. I mean, you're spot on when you said that language can divide. Look at the way in politics language is used to otherize people and to just stereotype and all these things. But it can also be used to expose, I would say, the web that we're all woven into. I am hopeful that language has the power and can be a, a means to unite us as opposed to divide us. Whenever I think about language, I always think about George Orwell and how he points to how language can be so abused. That's right. So we depend on poets to be honest with us and teach us how to use language well. Mm. That's a high order, and that means we as poets have to be honest with ourselves because that's the beautiful thing. It's like uh, in Arabic they say, a vessel can only pour what it contains. So that's, again, to me, why art is so intimately tied. You know, people say, what's your music about? What's your art about? What's your poetry about? It's about everything. And they say, oh, it's, is it spiritual? Kind of. I mean, I believe this whole affair of existence is a mystical, psychedelic, ecstatic experience. Like, we're just points of consciousness that were not in existence a few years ago, a few breaths ago. And then we came into existence through this portal of our mother's womb. And then all of a sudden, we're walking around, and we're the universe conscious of itself. And we're trying to figure out, why are we even here? What does this all mean? And we can experience this vast range of emotions and feelings and ecstatic pleasure and excruciating pain and suffering and emotions. That's what the mystics have always said, but now science is realizing. We walk around and we say, oh, yeah, I'm so bored today. Um, yeah, life sucks. Like, yeah, life can be difficult for sure. And people go through deep periods of suffering and depression is real. I'm not trying to minimize that, but step back. You know, I really feel like it's a great, perfect symbol of modern man because in Jendabai, and you go out of the cities, you look up at night, it's infinite stars. I was in Indonesia and Bali a few weeks ago. I hiked a, a mountain during the night and then we got up there before sunrise. The stars, it's just infinite you're like in awe. You cannot but just be like, this is amazing. This is life. We're in this. But now we've created this modern city that literally veil the heavens from us. 
we can no longer even see the heavens. And we can no longer see the rain coming, the seeds sprouting, then planting. When you're connected to this whole web of life, it's difficult to get depressed. Brack, always such a pleasure to talk to My you. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Next time, not two years, yeah? I hope not. <laughs> we gotta we gotta lean on uh, Mehdar and Crescent Collective to bring me. No, but I really hope to come on a regular basis. I, I love Southeast Asia in general. I love Malaysia in particular. It's a beautiful region. The people are beautiful. I love the culture. I love the diversity of Malaysia. It's so beautiful. You see people from all walks of life. And I love the weather. And I love the fruit on the trees. So... <laughs> Baraka Blue here in the country in his Love and Light Tour 2016. While here, he conducted workshops, attended a retreat, had readings, dialogue sessions to promote interest in the English language, and also to promote greater understanding, tolerance, and love through poetry and creative expressions. This is Front Row on the Bigger Picture, and I'm Lim Sun Hing, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. This year, I will chew 117 number two pencils. I will doodle nine Staples notebooks to death. When it comes to school supplies, it's guaranteed your kids will go through a lot. I'll make a whole lot of paper airplanes. I will lose my backpack. That's why you get guaranteed savings for back to school at Staples. I'll give away my last pen to Nathan in math class. Get guaranteed savings at Staples and right now one subject notebooks for just a penny with a $5 purchase. Staples, that was easy. Valid on select SKUs while supplies last. Limit 6. Ends 825-12.